This episode of American Farrier's Journal podcast is brought to you by SmartPak. Hi, this is Jessica, SmartPak's National Director of Equine Health Education. SmartPak knows that the most important part of hoof health is consistent, quality maintenance from you, the hoof care professional. But as you know, some horses need extra nutritional support to maintain hoof horn quality and growth rate. At SmartPak, we offer a variety of hoof supplements for all needs and all budgets, and we'd be happy to help your clients find the perfect supplement for their horse. They can call our highly trained team at 1-800-461-8898 or visit us anytime at smartpak.com. Welcome to American Farrier's Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern, executive editor and publisher for the journal. In every episode, we'll talk to a farrier about their careers, better hoof care, and sometimes things that may not have anything to do with the horse's foot. So thank you for joining us for our new podcast. We know farriers spend a lot of time behind the wheel, driving from barn to barn, so we want to provide this to you as a way to gain more foot care insight while you're logging those miles. So I was thinking with this being the first episode, let's make a splash with our first interview. So I chose Craig Trinka. I'm hard-pressed to think of another farrier who's had a bigger impact on the industry in the last couple of decades than Craig. He's been president of the American Farriers Association. He just celebrated 10 years with the World Championship Blacksmiths. He's an educator through and through. He's willing to help whoever has a question. He's willing to put in that time with whoever's willing to learn. He's also outspoken. He's often quoted. And I don't think there's much middle ground for or with Craig, but it's undeniable on how much he's given to this industry. So welcome to our podcast, Craig. I guess where I'd like to start, I'm I'm curious, you've been in the industry for a long time, but what first got you interested in horseshoeing? I got a horse when I was a, a junior in high school and I didn't even need, I didn't even know they needed hoof care or anything. I just need, I knew I wanted a horse. And then once I got the horse, I, you know, I had uh, my aunt and uncle say, well, you know, they need to have their feet trimmed like you trim your toenails. And, you know, obviously from seeing the animal, you knew that they had to have something done. So I didn't know it was called a farrier or blacksmith or a horseshoe or whatnot. And he came out and uh, I was just kind of like in, enthralled infatuated with the fact of what he was doing and that someone did this like i didn't even know that there was a person to come work on my mare much less work on everybody's animal and so you just kind of i saw it and uh what's funny is is you just think that you could master it within a few weeks and you could you could make a living and i would never see another poor day in my life and it was just so ignorance kind of keeps you right at the tip of it and if you'd known how hard it was going to be when you started might not have ever even entered up in it but you know just when you're when you're 18 years old you're like well i'll do this and i won't have any troubles and i'll just get right into it and so that's basically and never look back you know you just you just do it and and luckily i was fortunate enough to make my vacation my vocation and my vocation my vacation it's been awesome ever since in particular, what was it about the work that drew you into it? I think that, that, like, I think men and women are different in the respect that men, 
like when they're children, they like for the most part. I'm just saying I'm I'm stereotyping, but that's all right. Men like 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 cars and tractors and trucks, and women love animals. So women get into horses because they truly love an animal, like a horse. They love a horse, and and like men, they might get into horses because they could rope, they could go show jumping, they could do something, but they. I don't think their love runs as deep for an animal as a woman, so it's sort of like, when I saw it, it was like all the mechanical aspects, like a horse would stand still to have its foot trimmed, and then the mechanical aspect of, oh, you could, and I'd never seen a horseshoe built, it was keg shoes, and, and so it was like, you saw someone pull a shoe out and fashion it around a, a, an anvil horn and, and put it on, all those mechanical aspects were really just overwhelming. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. In and but, uh, oh, sorry. But like, like I say, you know, it's like it's like women. Like you see this big shift now. There's women that re- there's overwhelming amounts of women that get into horseshoeing, and it's because they, you know, they have this this they love their animal. And I'm not saying that men don't love their animal too, but it's like it, it's it's it, men men like man this is mechanical there's so many toys i get to have nippers i get to have i think it i think that that's what keeps you strung along until you get really dug in and love horseshoeing for what it's love is is you kind of you get to make things better you get to help things and make things right so i think that's the true passion for everybody man and woman yeah and you're a lot of people think you think of you they think the southwest they think new mexico but but you're uh you're an upper midwesterner like us yeah yeah i was originally born in in minnesota and my my, my dad was worked for a big automobile automobile manufacturer so we got transferred down to new mexico but that's why i went to shoeing school in minnesota was was because i could go and i wouldn't have to pay room or board i could stay with a family a a relative and and uh and at the time you know i think that's what's funny too is at the time when you pick a shoeing school or pick out your trade you have no idea where you're going or what's better or what's worse you just you do things for convenience and you do things because they're more relevant to you, not relevant to the big picture. So, you know, that that's why you do, most young individuals do stuff is because it fits into their program, not to the program of the big scheme of things. Yeah. Who were, uh, I, I have to imagine Richard was, was an early mentor. Who were some of your mentors when you were getting into the trade? I was very, very fortunate. I was like, I, I don't know if it was just because I, I was such a hard-headed, like, dummy that you just walked into situations, you know, like, like a lot of people are intimidated by, like, oh, that, that's so-and-so, and it was like, I didn't even know who so-and-so was, so, like, when I was fortunate enough to go, and, um, like, I, I saw one of the people that came to Minnesota School of Horseshoeing whenever I was attending there was they were just getting standard bread racing in Minnesota at Shakopee. And uh, so they had Bruce Daniels. And so, like, I didn't even know that I was probably witnessing one of the greatest barriers of his time in, in uh, holy cow. You know, you saw that, and you saw horseshoes be made by a guy that could make horseshoes really, really good. And so uh, then whenever I just kind of kept in touch with Bruce, and, and I was on the American Farriers team with Bruce the first time I ever was on the team, and then that kind of le- – once you get into the pipeline of education and you get to meet people and they know they know that you're a hard worker, then they help you. If they think that you're just somebody who wants to name drop, then you kind of get 
thrown to the curb. But if they know that you're really trying to better yourself, people will help you. And so then once I was in the pipeline, it was like Grant Moon, Shane Carter, Jim Poor. I mean, we're talking, I had the tutelage of some of the best people in the whole wide world, which I'm very fortunate. They didn't, they, uh, they helped. And it, it was just, it just never ends. It's just all relative. It just keeps going. Yeah, yeah, and, and not not a easy to win their favor. You know, you had to show the dedication. Do you do you have a, a favorite memory of Bruce? Oh yeah, Bruce was Bruce is the most famous saying that I have from Bruce is he's like he looks right at you and says everybody wants to learn but nobody likes to be taught and and that stuck to me to this day because no one everybody's like. Yeah, I want to go work for somebody. But whenever you go work for somebody, whoever it may be, you're always like, well, I want to learn. But no one likes it when you get your uh, finger poked in your chest and say, you suck. You don't do this right. You don't pay attention. You don't do that. And even though you're learning and you're and you're getting education, people, people don't like that. People don't like that in today's day and age. So it's it's one of those things where you just – you know, learning learning takes a ton of humility, and 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 some people are like, well, I didn't like the way he talked to me. Well, tough. You know, what I mean, if you want to abstract something from this individual, if they talk demonstrative, they talk down. If they do anything, you know, that's part of getting those little gems of wisdom. How did you learn humility? Or I guess, what was your advice for the best way to be taught? Well, I think I think that. Um, I think that one thing that was in my advantage that's in a disadvantage is like I was young, so I still was in that frame of mind of being talked to like my parents. You know, I'm old school. My parents were like, you don't talk until, you know, you're spoken to, stuff like that. So when you're still in that frame of mind of learning, you can learn. But once you go out and you're expected to be an expert, like you, let's just say you're a 28-year-old individual that's already been in the Marines, that cuts down your chances of learning exponentially because you already have this self-esteem. You've been taught honor. You've been taught all these things. So then learning, someone saying, hey, go sweep the floor and then we'll make some shoes. You're like, I don't have to sweep your damn floor. And it's like all of a sudden that cuts down your ability to take in some information. And so, so like I'm not saying that the window of, of learning – is limited i'm just saying that if you can hold on to those values of when you were a kid like i don't i don't need any self-esteem to to uh to learn something i need i need to learn and and you'd be surprised that's that whole entitlement that we're we're uh listening and and hearing about now and it runs rampant on facebook is people are like i don't want to wait 10 minutes to to shoe a horse you're like well if i need the money i'll wait i'll wait half a day to shoe a horse because that's that's just what I want and what I need. And and so the, going back to the whole learning thing is like if you can just stay in that frame of mind from the time you get out of high school or then then you accept learning. But if you if you let's just say you went off on the fast track somewhere else and you're selling real estate and then the real estate market boom drop and then you go into the learning of horseshoeing, it may be a little bit harder to go when you're used to knocking down $250,000 a year and then have someone talk to you like, hey, you have to earn your stripes. It's harder. It, and anybody who says that's not harder 
is uh, mistaken. You know, that's interesting because sometimes I'll see younger farriers who are completely full of confidence. They're, they're bursting with it. But then you find more established, older farriers. They're much more humble. I, I think they're seeing the complexity of it. The, the older ones recognize the complexity of it, and, and perhaps some of the younger ones don't. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah. Ignorance is bliss. It's sort of like if you... If you've not made a bunch of mistakes, you're not afraid of making mistakes. And it's like, I think that, I don't think that there's an old, savvy, 35 years experience horseshoer out there that would tell you how to shoe a horse. If they're really smart, they would, they would, but they, but all old savvy horseshoers know how that they would not shoe the horse. So through the process of elimination, they're like, well, I wouldn't shoe it this way. I wouldn't shoe it this way. And I wouldn't shoe it this way. So that leads them because failure kind of paints you into a corner of success. So like you, you're like, I failed doing this, so we're not going to do that today. And I failed doing this, so we're not going to do that today. And I've seen a million feet like this that do this. So they don't know how to shoe a horse correctly, but they know that they're not going to shoe that horse incorrectly on that day. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. And that it's eliminating all the variables that didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, and so, so, and that's, I mean, and, and that's what I guess I mean is it's like when you're younger, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying there isn't exceptions to the rule. There's lots of people who have, who've taken on a second and third and a fourth career and done very well at it. I'm not saying you can't do that. I'm saying that, that like in life in general, if you, if you, uh, let, let's just say Bruce Daniels says, Craig, you suck at this, you suck at this, and you suck at this. This is what you need to get better at. If I was older, I would think, holy cow, this is unsurmountable. But that same cockiness that you say that younger people think that hoof care is not as complex and this and that, that same ignorance is what keeps you going and keeping you from, from being discouraged. You're like, well, Grant Moon just told me that I, I, I'm no good at this. And, and if, you were, if you were 35 and you you just coming into the industry, you might say, man, there's no hope for me. But then when you're 18 and he tells you that, or 22 and he tells you that, you're like, ah, what does that guy know? And you just rock on. You know what I mean? It's like there's, there's certainly a huge advantage to getting into it when you're younger than when taking it on as a second or a third career. So in a way, it's a blessing and a curse because, of course, you're going to then lose that ability to learn from someone else. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so you see that is it's like, and it's just one of those things where like you, you see a kid with a skateboard and you're like, Hey, I'll bet you you can't jump off the top of that van. Well, a 35 year old person is going to say, yeah, you're right. I can't because I'm going to break every bone in my body. And that, and that 16, 17 year old kids like going to be like, well, they say it can't be done, but I'll bet it can. And they might, they might (laughs) crash 42 times, but they'll, They'll figure out a way to skateboard off the top of that van just because it's like youth is is got so many advantages that you can't even put it in a jar. You know what I mean? It's not even funny. So the resilience of youth usually can make up for, for your ignorance. But you have to have that ignorance to keep pushing through. Right, right. Hey, let me, let me switch gears and get back to starting out. And then, how, what, I mean, is it part of the same mechanics or... You know uh, what kind of what you talked about before of what attracted you 
to the competition side? Well, the competition side was uh, was just you you like man it, that was that was the coup de gras. Like I went and I would probably say that I shod by myself for the first five years, just kind of in the dark. I learned how to I learned how to make my like I learned how to trim and use my nippers without cutting myself. I learned how to use my rasp without cutting myself, and I used learned how to use my knife without cutting myself. So I was, I was learning muscle memory with my tools and learning how to pre- be proficient with my tools, which, which in, in hindsight, it was probably needed. You need to go off on this island. You need to learn how to, to drive a nail, to do things. Even though you were doing them incorrectly, you were still trying to, 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 to do the best you possibly can. And then the American Farriers Association convention came to town and uh, it was like in my town in Albuquerque so I was like well I'm going to go check that out and when I went and checked it out I became a volunteer when I became a volunteer I got to steward at the competition and then all of a sudden you see like whenever you do something wrong for five years man when you see someone do it right it just slaps you in the face it's sort of like and that that's see that's one thing that's wrong with Facebook is people are like I can't make a good clip. Can someone show me how? Well, you can show somebody how, but if you've not drawn two buckets full of clips, you'll never see how to do it right because you can't even acknowledge someone doing it right. So, like, I had spent five years of doing things wrong very, very effectively, and then when you go and you see, and I saw my heroes. Like, I I saw Bruce Daniels. I saw people, and that's kind of what reunited me up in that deal was Bruce Daniels at the time was president of the AFA, so... I got to see all these people do demos and and the competition, and you're like, you could see them use their tools. And you know, that's the gap, is people say uh, competition is onto itself, but it's really not. Those people who compete can use their tools, and they can, and anybody who's a craftsman or anybody who uses tools can see when someone is pretty sweet with a hammer or using nippers or a, a rasp, it's just, it's overwhelming and so that that what drew me into that right off the bat i was like these individuals are bad daddies yeah and and here you are back on the team and a long history of having been in it and and here we are at the 10th year of the of the wcb and uh uh let's talk about the origins of that a little bit when i was president of the afa Walt, you know, Walt can be demonized, villainized, whatever, but Walt, Walt wants to see horseshoers do good. Walt wants to see people go forward, and so I, I have a lot of respect for Walt, and I believe a lot of what he says, and I believe in Walt. So, you know, Walt was, was on the EC with myself and a bunch of other good people, and, and Walt's like, hey, you got the FIA. The FIA is someone who's taken the marketplace and made and facilitated the marketplace for the AFA so the AFA can focus on education and going forward. What we need to do is we need to make an association, a subchapter, whatever, of the competition so we can remove the strife and the inner bickering from competition. Because, you know, at the time, the, the and it still does, the, the competition has a huge budget. So then when you have someone who says, well, how come they get this budget it's the same as in it's in, it's the same as in let's just say high school. How come how come the the football get the football team gets this budget and gets a cool bus and band doesn't get nothing? Why doesn't band get as much as the and it just comes down to viewership. People like to go and watch 
a football game and they they get income from a football game and the band is a parasite that sits in the in the stands and plays for the football game but the main attraction is the football game and people get pissed they're like no music's very important no i believe it is very important so we go right back to the afa the money maker for uh viewership was in the competition but yet people are mad because it's got a budget so we were thinking if we make a competition that is like a subculture inside the afa that would remove a lot of strife it would keep the viewership it would keep the attendance but it wouldn't be a line item in the budget and then that would cut some of the strife and the in-house bickering out so once we did that we made a proposal for the the afa and it, it with with uh, stuff that it definitely went south, and they just canned it and didn't want to didn't want to mess with it. So it was it was a lifelong dream of mine to make sure that we we started it. So after I was done with the AFA presidency, we went ahead and started the WCB, which was supposed to be the subculture of the AFA, a competition aspect, a parasite of it. And and it, it's it's taken off. And the reason it's taken off is because we've taken all the good things out of competition and we've taken all the good things from England and how they run their competitions and how they, they generate these great farriers in such a short amount of time. And, it, and it's proven. It proven over there and then it's proven back over here. Yeah, you're a big believer in the British system and... and not just for competition, but, but education. Oh yeah. England is the perfect Petri dish for great horseshoers. And, uh, when I say that it's the size of the country, the overlapping of the circles. And when I say circles is like a farrier has a circle in which they shoe horses. They go out. It's a, a circumference of where they take care of their horses. And, and the circles may overlap big in the East coast, but then you have come out west and those circles may never even touch. Like my circle may never even touch this other person's circle. So when you get to England, you have these overlapping circles of businesses. And so people have more of a community. And then they have, they've gotten past the whole registration thing and become registered farriers, which deals with the professionalism of it. And then they have a competition and you can go to a competition just about every weekend in England and it's uh, education and it's uh, entertainment and it's it's definitely something that they do and they encompass fairy as a whole as a whole the horse the horse is a great king in England so it's it's cool to see yeah and a point you've made before is is with the registration council and all of the organization around it it's been around long enough where we can learn from their mistakes as well Oh yeah, and we can do it. And the reason we need to do it and we must do it is, is people think that I'm a socialist or a communist because I want to do it. But the the veterinarian profession has done it, and they've gotten past it. Hell, the medical profession in the United States has done it. We used to have all the hacks from other countries come to this country to become doctors because we didn't have any kind of regulation, and they did it. You know, it's like, and barbers have done it, and and every everybody's done it it's nothing but a lump in the carpet and we need to do it before we're absorbed into some other profession what what do you what do you see that concern as what what do you see it as becoming a- well i think that i think that um i think people want accountability i think that the that that the world wants someone to say hey this lady let's just say jane doe wants 
to know about her horse's inside crushed heel, and she's a member of the American Quarter Horse Association. What do you say, AQHA? What do you say about inside crushed heels? And they're like, well, we're not a we're a breed association. We're not really uh, so so. We'd love to we'd love to defer you. And when they go to deferring somebody, there's a big like, oh, that's wide open space. You might as well just shoot a rocket out into space. It's like, well, there's really no one that wants to take the expertise as far as Jane Doe's uh, question on inside smashed heels. And so, and and when whenever I was president of the AFA, that's what was brought to my attention was who does somebody defer Jane Doe to when she has some. And it's like the AQHA, the American Pain Horse Association, the the race trackers, everybody wants to defer someone to an expert. And so when instead of us saying, hey, we are the expert, what we've done is we've let the, the veterinarian community say, no, no, you guys are just appliance suppliers and we're the experts. So we're the ones that are probably going to take over all the the literature manuscripts and and all that and we're gonna we're gonna take it over and we'll just start a branch of podiatry like we do when you branch off for large or small animal we'll just branch off to podiatry and so they and it's not like they they won't make criminals out of all farriers but it's just sooner or later you're gonna have to be a podiatrist to work on on horses feet and that's what i see that's what i see happening already and that's what i see is going to happen to our trade if we don't take ownership and uh, defer people who want those questions and all the associations and everybody who want to make someone accountable and ask questions about horses' feet. Yeah, and we, we've talked about this before, and I think this is another misconception people hold on, on what you believe is you're not necessarily advocating you know, something tied to a specific way of shoeing. In fact, I think you've compared it to getting a CDL license. Yes, yes. What it is, is it's a CDL license doesn't have anything to do with learning how to drive a truck correctly. They teach you the pitfalls. The CDL license is 100% behind the message. The message is, is that you have an 80,000 pound missile and you can't stop it. So this is the best way to drive conservatively and drive within the means. And so when you and once you get your CDL, you must learn how to drive and you must learn everything that keeps you safe and everything. But that's a minimum. And and the bottom line is is like everybody says, Well, what happens to the barefooters? What happens to the the people who believe in alternative materials? That those that those are still free to flourish within a registration it's just you have to have a minimal knowledge that says I will do no harm and you have to know anatomy to the basic extent that I will do no harm you have to know you have to know your anatomy and then once you're done you're, the the registration is all about not like how can I go and shoe Farlap or American Pharaoh that's not what the registration is about the registration is about I will pick up this foot and not try and do any harm when I start. And I have the minimal amount of knowledge that keeps me from doing harm. Who do you think can take up this cause? Man, that's the million dollar. Like if I was younger, man, and I knew what I knew now, I would, I would take on the endeavor. But it's like, I think that, I think that, uh, 
right now we got to probably get it from like the the horse councils or uh you know some our associations i think the afa i think that the afa has all of the policy written they just need to implement it and the afa has been uh someone the reason the afa is is like staggered is because there's so many people who took their cjf test thinking that someday we will implement licensing and registration and they're sitting on the fence and that's what stems up these associations like the aapf is they're like the aapf is like well man if they're stymied i'm gonna they, they fell down on the ground and here's the ball they fumbled it we're gonna carry it further so I, I'm not saying that the AAPF is is the, but I'm saying these associations that want to see growth and want to see us move forward and want to see education are just starting to spurt up because the other associations have decided that they just want to, they don't they don't want to be uh, a trade organization. They want to be a charity organization. So you have to figure out what you want to do. Now, you suppose getting back to, to where a lot of your focus is now and, and uh, the WCB, one of the great stories I like is where you first got help. And uh, uh, it was setting up the tent that first time after you bought one in that, that first year. Yeah, we went to Dillon, Montana. And, I, I you know, uh, the tent thing, they, we, come to, we, we, we realized that a tent was inevitable because... They charge you about $1,500 for a two-day event to rent a tent. We're like, well, we can, a tent costs about 11, 12 grand to buy. So we bought a circus tent, a, uh, <laughs> a, 40, by, a 40 by 100 circus tent. And when you get a tent, you just assume that it's like when you get a model race car, it has instructions on how to put it together and it doesn't. So we get this tent and has no instructions. And so we're at Dillon and we uh, there's a man there that really what's cool about horseshoeing and blacksmithing and forging is that it draws people fire and hard work draw people like none other before so when it draws people you have this this group of people to choose from and when i say choose like people come up to you it doesn't matter if they own a car i mean a car wash or they're and in our case we went to dylan and this man came up to us and he says uh, hey, this is a really neat venue. This is really cool. But have you killed anybody yet? And I was like, No, sir. No, sir. We haven't killed anybody. And he's like, Well, you're fixing to this weekend. And I was like, I was like, Wow. Why? And he goes, Because you haven't done anything correct with this tent. And if a big wind comes, you're gonna have a bunch of shrink wrapped farriers under here. So you're in a lot of trouble. And I was like, Wow. You know, I was worried then. Then I worried the whole weekend we were in Dillon. He goes, Well. When you get ready to tear down, let me know and I'll and I'll show you how how come your tent's not put together right. And we didn't lace it together. We didn't do anything. It was just kind of it was just kind of stood up and it was it was uh, it was just kind of I don't know. It, looking back on it, it was very dangerous and just God wanted me to do all this because otherwise He would have killed us all that weekend. You know what I mean? And so the the the. A guy named Jim Sychek was said he came back and he showed us how to put it up and we had seen him at other events since then and showed us many other things but I didn't know I was going to be a carnival worker whenever <laughs> I, I started this but we are and 
And he he told me the golden rule for the WCB when you go to an event. He's like, you always beg for forgiveness, but you never ask for permission. And that's kind of how we've we've set up at these all these events. Is you always just set up and and you just do it, and then you say, oh, we're sorry we did that. If you did something wrong, but that's that's that was our number one golden rule. Yeah, and you know, I think one of the neat things when you go to to a WCB event is, you know, I think whether this is part of your personality anyway, but I think another thing you learn from the circus guys is showmanship. You're you're at these venues like the the Horse Fair in Madison or the Virginia State Fair, and and you're you're standing there emceeing the event and, and telling everybody what's going on, sort of like a a ringmaster. Yeah, and 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 that's that is true. Is what we do is. Like when we first started, we didn't even have holes in the top of the tent, so people would, it would be nasty and, and there'd be not that much, it would be hot and stagnant air, and so people wouldn't stay under there for very long, and we've just learned how to refine it. Now we have the, the trailer that's got 12, 10 flues under it, and it's, it's very clean. The people don't get dirty. They can stay under there as long as they want. We know, I know, you know, that people stay under there, the average a uh, fair goer probably stays under there for 12 minutes. I know that the average fair goer, uh, if you don't keep a lot of information in front of them and keep them engaged, they don't even want to stand up there for that long. I, I've noticed that, that we have to, it's a double-sided coin. We have to make horseshoeing entertaining enough to where they want to learn. And, and we want we want to showcase farrier's hard work, but we also, we want to educate the public on why they want to use skilled craftsmen to do their horses. Yeah, and, and what a great venue, especially there in Madison. You, you got 60,000 people coming through there, all probably the most of them are horse owners and, and have no idea about the feet. Yeah, and, and it, it that Madison's a fun gig for us because like, Unfortunately, all of our guys go to these competitions, guys and gals, and they get tired of listening to Craig's old jokes and Craig say the same crap and the same spew of things. But, but uh, for when you go to Madison, you have these new, fresh faces, and so you have to you have to engage them and you have to say the same thing over and over and over for three days. So my dog and pony show, sometimes I, I add a new twist or this or that, but for the most part, you're trying to keep people engaged and let them know that, that this is a trade because the number one thing, as you know, being in the, 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 the industry is the fact that when you say something about being a farrier or blacksmith, they're like, oh, that's a dying trade. And you're like, no, it's not a dying trade. Horses are sports and entertainment, and it's actually a growing trade. Yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, it's a. I think that's an important message to get across. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about competition in itself, and and one of the misconceptions, and it goes along with those people, even in this trade of of thinking thinking it's a dying facet of it, and it's not, and. You've talked a lot, and we've talked a lot about uh, what people draw from it. And of course, it's it, what you see is well, yeah, they learn how to use the anvil. They're they're learning forging skills, but there, there's much more. And, and one of the interesting things you talked about is, is kind of that idea of, of stress and self discipline. One thing is, is almost all farriers are introverts. They get into it because they think they're going to be their own boss, and little do they realize that they're going to have 80 bosses. And so it's almost they've created their own nightmare. You get into it, and, like, I've seen young kids like, let's just say Chris Madrid. He gets into it. He's a very quiet, soft-mannered individual, 
And so when you show up at somebody's house, you have to take charge of like, no, we don't want to shoe that horse there because that'll get us in trouble. No, we don't want to do this because that'll get us into trouble. And we, you want to kind of be in charge. And so you've got a lot of people who get into being a farrier and kind of get railroaded by their own customers and get into some unhealthy situations because of just what you just said is like that stresses them out. So when you start to compete, you start to realize that, hey, everybody under this tent is under the same boat as I am. They're, they're like, and then they realize that, hey, everybody wants to see me do good. And then all of a sudden you're like, hey, and then you get that competitive spirit. And that competitive spirit is you want to do good. And then you invite stress into your life instead of just avoiding stress. The stress, maybe not so much stress, but that, that exhilaration of competing. And then all of a sudden you, you, you get this kind of grit to you. And then you learn that, man, I can do this. And once you say, I can do this, then when you go to a vet and you're in their clinic and they're like, hey, we need to put some straight bars on this mare. If you haven't competed or you haven't been in those situations, you first thing you're thinking is, man, I want to make this happen, but I, I, I don't know. And you get kind of flustered. But when you compete and you've been in those situations and you've seen this, that you, you, you're like, you embrace it. And I think a lot of people think that competition, it makes you, it makes you cocky, it makes you brazen. It, but you, like, again, we circle all the way back to square one, is when you've competed, you've failed so many times that it's, it's led you to what's correct. And so you don't, when you compete, you don't nearly win as many times as you lose. So you're not so afraid of that losing. So in your everyday business, you learn to take control of your everyday business. And people think that that's something subtle, but it's not. It's a big problem with all farriers. They get railroaded into doing something that's not correct, whether it be safety-wise or whether it be skill set-wise. And then that's when your problems start to arise. Yeah, and I think it, it goes back to that that idea of confidence. And, and you know, if you, if you look at the competitor, like you said, the majority of the people there at a, at an event they don't win, uh, so to speak. They they don't win the prize. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and so here here you have them. It's the camaraderie. I think it, it does a lot to condition them on how how to learn again. Without a doubt, and it and it and it and it it's like you have to go away with a bone. Like you're you're disappointed that you didn't win, but okay, what was the bone that I got this weekend? What was, and it, it's like, there's so many little things that you got. Like, you're like, man, that guy, I was making my heel all wrong. I was, man, I, I could have done that so much easier. I could have made that hockey stick so much better. I, he left that. And then, then again, is like, we have shoeing. So whenever, Man, the, the having those horses and having all those feet under there and having in between goes and the nitpicking and the picking apart of the feet and the process and the, and the way you did it, that all, when you didn't do good, usually the people at the banquet that night, they know that they're not going to do good and they know they are going to do good because the mob under the tent, just everybody's exchange of information, they're like, hey, you, you messed up here, but this is how you could fix it for next time. And just that alone gives you so much confidence because you're like, you you realize you have this group of people under there that all see it the same way, and finally you they convinced you that yeah that it is that way because, man that that denial is an awful river you know what I mean you <laughs> you you don't realize you do something or you do it every time and you're just in denial about doing it man when you go and you get in there with a group of people it it fixes that real quick. 
I don't think a lot of people realize, uh, you know, I, I think people on the outside look at it and they're intimidated. It's it's something maybe new to them or, or they're worried about that, having their work knocked. I don't think people realize you, you've worked really hard and kind of fostering this culture within the WCB where, where if you're there and it's kind of like you, you're talking about with the mentors early on, the, it's the people, if you're there to commit yourself, there's people willing to help you. Yeah, and, and it's like, you're right, it is a culture. It's like, like I, got a, I went to the summit and a good friend, I won't mention names, but a good friend of mine, he's, a, he's been a member of the, the WCB since its inception. And he said, hey, I got on, the, got on the elevator with some of your boys. And I could tell he was a little upset. And he said, he goes, and they, they really did, they were kind of cocky and it kind of took me back. And I was like, you know, I don't, I don't like that. And I don't put up with that. And people are like, well, what can you do about it, Craig? It's like, hey, we're supposed to be enabling people. We're not supposed to be ostracizing people. So it's like, we, this is a culture and, and we don't, like people who seem like they're out of sorts or like if you're in a New York subway and you're looking at a, a map on how to get around the subway, you're lost. And that's, those are the people that you're supposed to in, engage and encompass. But you know, we're not, we're not about like pushing off or, and, and people, people, you know, they, they think that it's about chest beating. It's not. It's about making a large group of people understand that this trade is very, very hard. Some of the work you've put into it some more is, is a lot of people will see you at the, the event and they think, wow, it's so busy and there's a lot going on. Most of the work you're doing is there ahead of time. And, and talk a little bit about that. And, and when you're outside of the season, the kind of work you have to put into well, like we get, we go through about ten fire pots a year, and I'm just going to say mechanically, there's always something broke on the trailer. But my wife, what she does, Chris, is like a lot of people don't realize that what we do is we have our goes already lined up. So, like, let's just say the competition as you enter, she makes a name placard, she puts it in in reverse, and then we put the name placards on every anvil stand. So when we go and we pick up shoes, we pull the name placard out, and it's already got the name placard for the next competitor. And stuff like that. We have the name tags. They are set up with wires and everything, and they're put in sequence. And then basically uh, Bodie and Chris have, the, if you've ever done an Excel spreadsheet, Excel is almost like a living organism. The more about you know about Excel, the more you can implement Excel. And so in it, we have an Excel spreadsheet that we keep on changing and and modifying to get our scorekeeping done so people know, like we're almost like modern day television or ESPN where we can, we can give results instantaneously and this is all about just getting the information out. And so then we have we have all of this uh, this stuff that's got to be, like, it's almost like an onion. we got to lay it down before we go to a competition. So once we have our final count three weeks out of who the competitors are, then we just start laying down these layers so that when we get to a competition, it can all be unfolded in sequence so it all works seamlessly. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. And, and that, I think that's the key when when people don't notice what's going on that beats all that work leading up to it was was done correctly and and that and you know what i finally like 
I would be a liar if I didn't. I don't like attention. I don't like. I don't like visiting with people. But the more we get into the WCB and the more that we get it to run like a well-oiled machine, the more it's like the reason that you don't ever see a producer, a cameraman, or or someone who is the executive producer of a movie is because they're doing all that stuff behind to where it seems like you're looking at real life. And so the more that we get into the WCB and we make everything uh, work smoothless, the less you see of the Turnka family, we're just making sure that it all unfolds and it goes really quickly. Yeah, yeah and it certainly is a family affair. Um, tell me, uh, tell us a little bit about your, your practice. Everybody thinks of you, they think competition, they think uh, the WCB. You, you're still shoeing horses, though. Yeah, and, and it, it's been, like, I've got 33 years of shoeing. I, I, like, I'm, I'm at that point right now where I physically can do stuff and I'm doing good. But, like, I go out. What I do is I try to go out in the morning and do between, you know, uh, probably about six horses. If there's trims, I don't ever count trims. We do quite a few trims. and then, But I try to do six horses, and we try to be back to the house by 2.30, 3 o'clock. And then 2.30, 3 o'clock, from the time then until it gets dark is when we do all our WCB stuff. But I, I still shoe a full book of horses, and I, uh, and I, have, I am uh, what you might say a parasite of the WCB now. Like I'll go in the back of the trailer when we come home, and I'll pull out all the bar stock that's half mangled or used or whatever, and I'll cut it up, and I'll make shoes out of it. And then like from our generous sponsors, we'll have nails that are left over, and I use a lot of those nails. And so, like, I have, I just can't, I'm a little old school. I just can't see that stuff going to waste. So I use a lot of that stuff to run my business, and which, in fact, makes it cheaper for me to do my shoeing business. But it's also, I don't, I can't see waste in any of that stuff. So that's pretty much how I run my shoeing business. Yeah, what, what, kind, of, what kind of horses are you doing? Uh, you know what? New Mexico is not the most ideal place to shoe horses. So I shoe for anybody who's got a broke horse that's got a checkbook. So that, <laughs> so it's like all the good people in the world don't live next door to each other, and all the good people in the world don't own the same type of horse. So I try to shoe for people who are logical, reasonable people. And and uh, I would say that I do ones and twosies. I do uh, – Mostly people who are hobbyists, like I'll shoe a dressage horses for people who've just got one dressage horse and they really want to uh, push it and take care of it. I, I try to stay away from the politics of big barns because you really, really, as much as I travel and as much as I'm away from home, you really have to groom a big barn because you could be the man one day and then all of a sudden those horses start dropping off because... It's like you're 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 going into pop music. Once you're popular, everybody wants to use you, and then if something falls off, you fall off quickly. So I, I kind of stick to people who have a, a horse that they just want me to take care of and stay away from trouble, and they know what trouble is, so they appreciate it. And and I mean, I know that sounds simple, but it's hard to do. I don't think you could work the big barns and, and do the WCB. It'd have to, kind of like what you're doing, it has to be one or the other. Yes, yes. And 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 really, like, I think, I mean, I'm toot my own horn, but I, I, I wanted to get the WCB going before I was totally antiquated and couldn't compete anymore because I wanted to lead by example. 
and show that this is how we do make the shoes. I wanted to do the how-to videos. I wanted to keep the, the you know, and, and me doing it personally keeps the expense down. If we have to hire someone to do a lot of the stuff that I'm doing, we would have never made it. So, so this year, you know, Bodie wants to compete. We'll never be able to compete in our own competition just because it would be a conflict of interest. So Bodie went to the AFA, and so I've got to be on the team with Bodie. And just, you know, th this this was fun because I really feel like I've, instead of being like Peyton Manning and going out or Brett Favre when your body's completely done and used up, I felt like I focused on the WCB before my body was used up or totally antiquated to where I could put that energy towards the WCB. But this year we've kind of brought a bunch of grief upon ourselves by competing at the AFA and on the AFT. And so it's been fun and I wouldn't trade it for the world, but competing takes a big commitment and it's, it's a lifelong endeavor. Yeah, yeah, but, but simply for the opportunity to do it with your son, I, I, I can't imagine anything else that, that would be more meaningful to draw you back into competition. Exactly. And I was, I'm sliding down the other side of the hill and he's climbing up the front side of the hill, so we hit it just about right. <laughs> I'm curious, we're, you know, like I've said before, we're the 10th season. Where do you see the WCB going? Where, where do you see this industry going in the next few years? I see the WCB going is we're trying to get into better venues all the time. Like we're scratching around at Las Vegas. We've had calls from some really nice venues. And the goal is, is like the reason that people uh, criticize the CJF program the AFA has is because they're like the public doesn't acknowledge the CJF. And so if we can, we're trying to create back pressure. And the back pressure we're trying to create is the fact that if we can make it popular in in the horse culture and horse owning culture by getting into good venues like Madison and Vegas and a lot of other popular venues, then we can create back pressure because I think the one of the best questions we get asked when we're under the tent that I feel like we're starting to make a difference is, is they're like, man, a, a lady came up to me in Madison and said, we are really uh, excited about this. This is neat. And my, my uh, farrier is John Doe. My, my farrier is one of the best farriers in the world, but why isn't he here? And see, that's the back pressure we would like to create is, is if they think of us as, as a, a mark on the wall, then we want to we wanna make sure that people get involved and stay. Because I, I tell the public, I can tell you what a good farrier is, and everybody gets like, I'm going to ostracize someone. And I'm like, a good farrier is someone who believes in continuing education. So when you go home, you should ask your farrier if they get continuing education. And if they kind of shrudge it off, then I think you've got the wrong person. And it's like, Barrier and anything is it just is ongoing. It's always going on, and so I feel like being being that person to defer to. The WCB would love to be that organization that defers questions and takes questions and all of that. And so that's where I see us going in the future is is to just keep on being a role player in continuing education and making sure that people know that if they got a question about, I'm not I'm not going to shy away from. If people want to know about something, we have so many members, we could definitely answer any question that comes down the pike. Looking ahead, and, and you talked about, you know, maybe outside threats to horseshoeing and 
uh, oversight, so to speak. And do you think there's too many, too much splintering? You know, you got the AFA, you got the AAPF, you have what you're doing, and, and you know, is there a way to bring everybody together? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I think that there is. I, I think that one is that when you when you open it up to where there's interpretation, sort of like, sort of like when I definitely believe that when Hildred Strausser said, you know, you could cut the heels back and a little bit of blood's not that bad of a deal. If there's no, if there's no organization that says, no, first we must do no harm. I think that, I think it definitely, that was the first sign to me that we've splintered too much. Is it sort of like, you, you can't, it's not an art form. It's not, uh, it's not up for interpretation. There is anatomy and biomechanics that say that these are what leads to success and this is what leads to failure. Um, I don't think it's as vague as people would like to think. And I don't think that just letting anybody, like if I wanted to start, like if I had enough money, I could open a building up in Edgewood and say that we are the, the, the foot farrier foundation of North America and have no, I don't, the, the U.S. government, nothing. I don't have to show my curriculum, no, nothing. I think that that's not healthy. I think that, I think that uh, everybody's like, well, that, that kills education. No, it doesn't. Sometimes it just flourishes misinformation and uneducation. So I think there's a balance there. And I think that, I think that uh, there's nothing wrong with chastising people who definitely are hurting animals. And so uh, Facebook can be our greatest ally and Facebook can be our biggest enemy is when people distribute misinformation. Uh, in a way, I, I wonder if it's like, I think to be a farrier, you have to be an A-type personality. People just get adopted. They adopt like one way of thinking and, and don't want to hear the other side. And uh, you know, or even sometimes that means not recognizing truth. Yes. And, and, and truth is, whether people like to admit it or not, truth is when, when you have, when, all right, let's just say you put a slide up on a wall and you have a beautiful foot. Truth is the fact that you have a group of people who say, yes, that is a beautiful foot. That's a beautiful front foot. That's the beginning of truth because now you, but I'm telling you, Jeremy, there's like, there is so many people who don't even know what a beautiful, healthy foot looks like. But there is a large, the, I, I would say, and I hate to call them this because I don't know what else to call them, but the mob, us, the mob, the people who are in the trenches. When, when the group knows what a beautiful foot looks like, then, then that is the beginning of the truth because you're trying to create this beautiful hoof capsule. And so... When you're off by yourself and you start seeing this kind of uh, deformed, uh, wrecked foot as the norm, that's when you have to get that person back into mainstream to where he realizes the carnage that he's actually performing. But some people don't ever even acknowledge the carnage that they do. Sure, I think you'd like to have more people always driving for greater success with the WCB. 
but to go back to your point, you're talking about continuing education, and you've said this, and I think there, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that, that already know what the quote's going to be, but you, you have a thought about what isolation does to a horseshoer. Yeah, the biggest disease of all farriers is isolation, because when you're, it's like two little kids, when you're, when you're running to the, to the telephone pole, you're going to race to the telephone pole, when one kid gets further ahead, the other kid just stops and said, I don't want to really race. And so then you put yourself by yourself. And as soon as you're by yourself, you are the greatest, most awesomest farrier in the whole wide world. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I know you need to get out. you got to get to those six horses today. And so uh, I just want to thank you for taking the time and talking with us. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on here. So what did I say earlier about Craig being outspoken? I don't think he disappointed with this episode. Thanks, Craig. And thank you to SmartPak for sponsoring this episode of our podcast. And also thank you to our listeners. If you have any feedback or farriers you'd like to hear interviewed, email me. I'm Jeremy McGovern at jmcgovern at lessitermedia.com. You can also send us feedback through Twitter through Facebook, wherever you can find American Farrier's Journal. We look forward to hearing your feedback. And I hope you'll join us for our next episode, where we'll feature an interview with Lafayette, Indiana Farrier, Danvers Child. And again, thanks for listening.